Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. All right, well, today we're going to do a, a story, and, and again, this, this isn't like, a, what I want to do this, this Easter is just take a couple of weeks and do stories around Easter. And so today I want to do the road to Emmaus from Luke chapter 24. We're going to make our way mostly through the chapter, almost all of it. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just to give a quick introduction, and then we'll go through the passage, but the road to Emmaus is a famous passage. It's right after the crucifixion and resurrection. It's on the day where Jesus rises, and two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're depressed, and they're sad because Jesus has died, and Jesus is going to walk with them, okay? And it's a famous, it's a famous story, but we're going to work through that story today in this message, and uh, I really just believe that Jesus is going to speak to us, and by the end of it, I hope that we just love him more. This is one of those messages. I hope all messages ultimately are about Jesus, even when we're, whether we're speaking about money or whatever. But this one really in particular and specifically is a lot about Jesus. And I want us to really worship him and love him more at the end of it. All right, so we're going to pray and then we'll do this. Lord Jesus, I just want to lift your name up this morning. And I want all of us here today. We come from different experiences this week and different things we're going through. And some of us are tired and some of us are distracted. And Lord, we've been through all kinds of stuff, and now we're all here together in one place. And Lord Jesus, the reason we're here is because of you. And Jesus, if we could just meet with you, if we could just, if we could just have the scales come off our eyes and see you afresh this morning and love you more and, want to, and go out from here and want to walk with you closer, that's my prayer today. I pray that you would help that to happen by your spirit. In your precious name we pray, amen. 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 The road to Emmaus. So just to set the, the stage a little bit, and then we'll, we'll get into verse 8. And, uh, but it's Sunday morning, two days after the crucifixion, and, uh, and the women, the, a bunch of the women, they, well, the guys are scared, okay? So they're, they're uh, definitely the women are doing better in the aftermath than the guys are. The guys are scared and behind closed doors. The women at least have the courage to go out of doors, and it's, the, it's Sunday, it's the third day. And they go with embalming spices, a bunch of them, to the tomb to do some further embalming of Jesus' body. When they get to the tomb, they find the stone rolled away, and there's two angels there, and the angels say, he's not here, uh, he's risen. Okay? So that's where we're going to pick up the story, and, uh, and then it's going to take us, and we're, it's going to take us just a few minutes, and then we'll get to the road to Emmaus. All right? But verse 8, and they, this is interesting now, so the angels have just told him he's risen, the stone's rolled away, um, and they, the women, remembered Jesus' words. That's really important. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, this is really interesting to me, and I think sometimes these stories, they get so familiar, we miss things, okay? And one of the things I feel like we miss is we read this story of how the disciples are afraid and, and the women are surprised when they get to the tomb, and we just think, well, of course they were surprised because... Uh, who could have seen, who could have foreseen that there would be a resurrection? Like, who could have foreseen that the Messiah would die and, and rise from the dead? Of course they were surprised. Of course the disciples were afraid and confused. If we're just so familiar with the story, it just makes sense to us that the women would be surprised here and that the men would be, would be afraid. But it's interesting. What we find here is that the women actually, oh, the PowerPoint. If you want to see the PowerPoint today, just feel free to crane your neck. It's working at the back. Um, <laughs> 
Good thing that the Holy Spirit can work in the absence of, of, of uh, PowerPoint. But anyway, they remembered Jesus' words. So I'm going to have to preach a little PowerPoint, just like most people have done throughout history. Um, but they remembered his words. What's interesting is uh, Jesus actually, see, and this was what caught me as I was meditating on the passage this week, is actually why were they surprised? Okay? They remembered his words. So that means Jesus was talking to them about this before it happened, which then actually raises the question, why were these women going to the tomb with embalming spices and not coffee, right? Like, if Jesus talked to them beforehand, why are they surprised? Now, just in case you might be wondering a little bit, well, okay, this seems a little bit, they remembered his words, like maybe you're making a little bit too much of this. I, I want to take you now, quick tour through Scripture. Those of you who have your Bibles, you can open those up. You can look at them on your phone if you want. No, you don't have to. It's there. I'm rescued. But uh, I'm going to take you on a quick tour because this is really important. This is something we miss. And uh, I'm going to take you on a quick tour because actually Jesus talked very specifically about his death and his resurrection repeatedly, specifically, many times before he died, okay? And I want us to look at that. And we're going to start, it's a good, and I think it's a good time of year to do that, uh, right around Easter, but Mark chapter 8, okay? If we go to Mark chapter 8, uh, the passage I'm gonna, we're going to look at just right now takes place right after Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves, okay? And after this incident... Um, he, this, this is what happens. Chapter 8, verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay? So he clearly tells his disciples and his followers, he clearly tells them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise after three days. Okay? And just in case you think, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's kind of said this with parables, like sometimes Jesus talked with things and, 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 and maybe they just kind of missed it because it was obscured and he wasn't very clear about it. Just in case we're worried that maybe he wasn't really simple and clear about it, I love the very next line Mark puts in there, verse 32, and he said this plainly, okay? He very plainly said to all of his followers, I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise after three days. Now, again, I ask the question, so why after he dies on the third day are they going with embalming spices and not breakfast, right? Why are the disciples hiding behind closed doors? Why are they still expecting him to be dead, and why are they surprised when he's alive? He said it clearly. Also, you might be thinking, well... Okay, you know, we've all been to school before, and there's a lot of blank spots in those classes. You know, I've been to a lot of messages before. Most of your messages, Chris, I just can't remember for the life of me, and that's probably good. And so there's gaps. You know, he said it once. They went over their heads. They missed it. Actually, he didn't say it once. He said it over and over and over again. If we go to the very next chapter, Mark chapter 9, we're going to find this when they go to Galilee. Chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, okay? He was teaching. By the way, the, the Greek word there is this active, ongoing uh, voice, the verb there, which means that it wasn't just once. He didn't just teach them once. It was a regular thing. He was teaching them this. He was regularly saying it, okay? And it says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So now, 
First of all, that, that begs the question there, how could they not understand? He said it plainly. He said it over and over again. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise on the third day. Like, he's really specific. Okay? But somehow they don't understand. And somehow afterwards... Again, they're going to the tomb on the third day after he repeatedly taught he would rise on the third day and they're not expecting him to be risen. What's going on here? All right? And uh, actually, it's interesting. Yesterday when I was preaching in the, in the first service, I said here, you can't get much more specific than this passage. Actually, you can get more specific because if we go to Matthew chapter 20, just before they got to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus actually talked about it again just a few days before his death, Okay? Just a few days before his death, this is what it says in Matthew chapter 20. They're on their way up to Jerusalem, and I want you to see how specific he gets, all right? Starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, okay? So he's going up to Jerusalem. They're on his way, their way. He's going to be crucified when he gets there. We're just a few days in advance now, okay? And he takes the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. So right now, he's telling them, this is just going to happen now when we go there. Okay? And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Okay? Like he has now explicitly told them exactly what's going to happen just days before it does happen. Okay? Like you can't get more specific. This one you can't really get much more specific than this. I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders. And then the Jewish leader is going to hand me over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And then the Romans are going to mock me, flog me, crucify me, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Like, he just play by play, and this, guys, is not going to happen at some indeterminate time in the future. It's happening, going to happen right now when we go to Jerusalem, okay? So again, my question is, we're so familiar with this story, and we never ask the question, why on earth are they surprised? Why are they depressed? Why are they confused? Why are they afraid? Why, when they go to the tomb, are they not expecting to find him risen? When he said, if there's anything he talked about in the Gospels over and over and over again, he did talk about almost more than anything else. He talked about, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And in fact, he was so open about this that actually everyone, not his disciples, actually caught on. If you go to Matthew 27, this is... After he has died, the Pharisees say this to Pilate, 27 verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, so Jesus is now in the tomb. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So these guys got it. I mean, he was so open about it, that, so his followers didn't get it. But the ones who didn't follow him, they knew he was teaching he'd, get, he'd rise on the third day. So what is going on? How could the disciples be so confused and so surprised, so sad and so depressed? Well, actually, Luke is going to answer that question in Luke 24 in this story of the road to Emmaus. And there's a few different themes in this. Uh, I could preach a few different messages and hit different strings and themes in Luke 24. But one of the major strings, one of the major themes uh, running through Luke 24 is an explanation for why they, they could be so surprised. I'm going to go back to Luke 24, and we're going to find out what that is. It'll take us a couple of verses, but we'll get there. Verse 10 of Luke 24. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So they've, they've seen the empty tomb now and the angels. 
Now, this is just, this is incredible to me. The, the lack of respect these guys have for women is unbelievable. Verse 11, but these words seem to them, that's the men, an idle tale. Now, can you imagine, okay, uh, you know, I can just imagine treating my mother like this. Those of you who know my mother, I would get my ears boxed, and that's not an exaggeration, okay? But these are not, these are not uh, women of low character. These are women who have been with these guys for a while. They, have, they follow Jesus. They are women of character. They go, and they see the tomb empty. And they come back, and they just say what they saw. All of them. It's not just one of them. They say, we saw the tomb empty, and there were these angels. And the guys look at each other and go, that's an idle tale. Like, these women are just making stuff up. Okay, can you believe, like, can you believe the, believe the disrespect and the, the amount of unbelief, especially in light of the fact that Jesus told them he was going to die and rise? It's actually just stunning when we think about it. And they did not believe them. Now, to Peter's credit, next verse, Peter at least, he, he's unbelieving too, but at least he has enough, you know, gumption to go out and look at it for himself, verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So he's not totally believing yet, but marveling. He's got some hope, and he's wondering, what is going on here? Right? What is going on here? And now we come to verse 13, and we get this road to Emmaus story. That very day, two of them, okay? These are disciples of Jesus. Now, just so you know, these are, there was the 12 apostles, but the 12 apostles were not the only disciples. So these guys on the road to Emmaus are not the 12 apostles. There was many other people who were disciples. They were followers of Jesus. They, were, they followed him everywhere he went. They knew his teachings and, and all that sort of stuff. But they weren't the 12 apostles, okay? There was many more people that followed Jesus than just the 12. So that very day, two of them, some of these disciples of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're talking about their disappointment, as we're going to find out, that Jesus didn't turn out to be who they had hoped he was going to be. They're probably talking about this mystery. Now these women are talking about his body is gone. The angel said uh, he rose. They're talking about these things, okay? Now verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Hold on to that for a moment. And he said to them, what is this conversation? Now, by the way, can you, I, I just, I, can you see the sense of humor, actually, that our creator has? Okay? Can, can you see it? I, I just imagine he's got a little bit of a glint in his eyes as he does this. So he walks up to them. I mean, haven't we all wanted to do this? To have a conversation with someone about us when the person we're talking to doesn't know it's us? Like, it's so, sort of in the same line as, you know, some of us would like to have, go to our own funeral and see what people say about us. So Jesus walks up to these guys, and it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him, all right? And then he asks them an innocent question. Oh, I can just, you know, the creator of the universe, and he's got a smile inside. What is this conversation? As if he doesn't know, right? That you are holding with each other as you walk. And they stood still, looking sad. And they stood still looking sad, right? So here he has spoken to them again and again and again and again. This is what's going to happen. They're going to reject me, and then they're going to crucify me. I'm going to rise on the third day, and here they are on the third day, and they're talking about these things, and they're looking sad, okay? But what's really, really fascinating to me in this whole thing is that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and that's the truth. That's the one we're going to zone into in the rest of this message, here Luke says it in the negative. In the rest of the chapter, there's this theme, and he's going to say it three more times. I'm not going to get to the third one because it's the end of the chapter. I don't have time to get there. 
But he says it here in the negative. They couldn't see because their eyes weren't open. In the rest of the chapter, three times, Jesus is going to open up their eyes to things. And it's only when he opens their eyes up that they're able to receive any kind of truth from heaven or understanding of things that have been taught to them, okay? And this is a really important point. I'm going to put it up there, and then we'll just let the, we'll let the story develop it. But here's one of the main threads, one of the main themes that Luke wants to tell in this story in Luke 24, and that is this. You and I can only know spiritual things if Jesus opens our eyes to know. Okay, this is, a, this is a really important truth. You and I, these guys can't even recognize Jesus' physical bodies unless he opens their eyes to see it. We human beings are so frail, we cannot know God, we cannot know his ways, we cannot know his plans, we cannot know his heart unless he initiates something in us first and opens our eyes to see it. And these were good people who loved Jesus. But actually, we need Jesus to open our eyes to know anything. Let's keep reading. We'll see this. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones. Now, remember, they don't know this is Jesus yet. It's one thing to hear Jesus say that to you. It's another thing to be sad and say to a stranger all these things that you're sad about and then for him to say, you simpletons. Okay? You, you are like children. How can you not get this? Oh, foolish ones, all right? It's not a bad kind of foolish. By the way, I'll put up, I'll put up Matthew 5 just for a second because in English, we, we have the word foolish. In Greek, they had different words for foolish. Uh, in English, if you call someone a fool, that would be a real put down. Jesus is not putting them down here. It literally is like he's talking to children, okay? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus used a different word for fool, and that's one where he says, don't call people fools, right? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, now the Greek word there is raka, which is a real put down. It's like you're, you're worthless. You are, you're good for nothing. It's a, it's a put down. That's not the word. In, in, in uh, Luke 24, 25, it's, Anaetos, which is just, it literally is like, uh, how, how could you not get this? It's not hard, guys. You're, like children, okay? He's ta- it's like he's talking to children, right? Now, if we keep going in verse 26, Jesus continues on. Remember, they don't know it's Jesus. They just think it's a stranger talking to them. Verse 26, and Jesus says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is one of the greatest Bible studies ever done, is what we read about right here, okay? So the road to Emmaus, Emmaus was like we read before, seven miles from Jerusalem. Uh, Scholars estimate it was about a two-hour hike, you know, up and down and around, all that sort of stuff. So it's about a two-hour hike. Jesus goes, and what's really interesting to me, and we'll, we'll develop this later too, but I just got to say it now already. What's really interesting to me is Jesus has just risen from the dead. It's the most incredible event that has happened in human history. And you think he's got to be in a, in a bit of a hurry, like show these guys and then go show yourself to someone else. Ta-da, it's me, I'm risen. Go and show someone else. Okay, like really, you just conquered death. This is like the greatest thing ever. And yet, notice how not in a hurry Jesus is. He goes on a hike with these guys for two hours and takes them on the greatest Bible study. Imagine Jesus taking you on a Bible study, beginning with Moses. So he started right in Genesis and the books of the law, takes them right through the prophets and explains to them everything concerning. Like I just, I mean this week, I I was, I, I wish, oh do I wish, there's certain things in the Bible, it's like Jesus, you didn't put enough in there. 
Like, Holy Spirit, why didn't you give us, a, like, even just the Coles Notes version? What, what did this Bible study look like? Like, where did he go? Did he start in Genesis 3.15? We talked about Genesis 3.15 a lot at Christmas and the prophecy in the Garden of Eden that were the first messianic prophecy where God promises that the seed of woman is going to conquer the offspring of Satan. Did he start there? Did he work through uh, the book of Leviticus? I'd love to hear Jesus preach Leviticus. Leviticus is the book that you and I all uh, dread when we get to it in our devos readings and some of us just skip over it. And it's just all these laws and sacrifices. Did he go through the sacrifices and bring them alive with all the parallels to what Jesus did and the need for blood sacrifice to atone for sin. I, I don't know. We don't know. I do have a couple of guesses, and I want to show them to you because it's Easter time, and I think it's good to look at these things. I think a couple of passages, I, I think we don't know, but I think a couple of passages that he might have or that I think would have been good in this Bible study, I wonder if he took them to Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10 is a mind-blowing uh, prophecy uh, God gave to the prophet Zechariah more than 400 years before Jesus. I'm going to throw it up there right now. And Zechariah 12 verse 10 says this. And I don't know. Did Jesus take them through this? But it would have been prophecies like this that he would have taken them through. Okay? But Zechariah 12 verse 10, 400, more than 400 years before the time of Jesus, God gave the prophet Zechariah this prophecy. And it's a prophecy about the end of days. It's a prophecy about when God comes to earth to set up his kingdom here on the earth. Okay? And in this prophecy, this is what God says. And I will pour out on the house of David. So this is when God comes to earth. This is, hasn't happened yet, but when God comes to earth to set up his kingdom on earth, heaven on earth, it's going to be amazing. We're still looking forward to this day. This is Zechariah's prophecy 400 years before Jesus. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, this is God speaking, when we look on God, when the Jewish people look on God, when he comes back, on him whom they have pierced. Now this is fascinating. Imagine you are an Old Testament Jew reading this prophecy. And you read a prophecy about when God comes to earth to set up his kingdom on the earth. And God says, when I come to earth to set up my kingdom on earth, you're going to look at me on him whom you have pierced. What? How could God have been pierced? When God comes to set up his kingdom on the earth, how could he come pierced? Who pierced God? How could God be pierced, right? They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep. There's going to be this time of repentance. The Jewish people are all going to give their lives to Christ. This will happen someday. But on him whom they have pierced. Embedded in this prophecy, we see that there have to be two comings of God, don't we? We see that he's going to come back to set up his kingdom. But before he comes back to set up his kingdom, something has to happen to God where God himself is pierced. Well, now we look at it in, in, in reverse, and we look at it from where we are standing now on this side of the cross. And of course, it just makes sense to us. Well, that's cool. If we know how this happened, God took on flesh in Jesus and he died on the cross. But imagine being an Old Testament Jew reading this passage. It, it, it would have been veiled to you on him whom they have pierced. But it's built right in. It's, in a, it's a brilliant prophecy. But imagine now Jesus is on this road to Emmaus. He's taking them through the prophets and he's opening up all these prophecies to them. He's showing them, actually, you didn't see this. Yes, God, I'm going to come back someday and restore the earth. But before I do that, actually, God had to die. Right? And we see this also in Isaiah 53. This is another one I think, uh, wow, uh, you know, if I'm going to guess, I think Zechariah 12, I'm going to guess that one was maybe in there. And I'm also going to guess that Isaiah 53 was in there. Isaiah 53, written by the prophet Isaiah more than 600 years before the time of Jesus. 
And Isaiah 53 is so explicit, it's so specific about what was going to happen to Jesus that actually, if I didn't tell you where it was from, I bet you most of you would guess it was from the New Testament. If I just read it to you and didn't tell you the passage where, where it was, most of you would think New Testament. In fact, it, but it's written 600, more than 600 years before. In fact, it's so New Testament. I, I read a Jewish guy online this week, and he said that many synagogues today, uh, Jewish, like where Jewish believers are, they will read through the Scripture. They have plans for reading through the Scripture. Many of them skip over Isaiah 53. They just don't know what to do with it. But Isaiah 53, I'll just read you a little snippet. He, and that's speaking of the Messiah, in this passage, he's called the servant of the Lord, was despised and rejected by men, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. There's that word pierced again. The Old Testament was clear hundreds of years in advance that this Messiah, that God himself, would have to be pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? So again, I don't know if this is one of the ones that Jesus did, but we can't know for sure. But I, it was passages like this. And Jesus, for two hours, takes them through the Old Testament and shows them that actually God had to come and die. And he had to be pierced in order to solve the sin problem, okay? But now here's what's really interesting to me. He's not talking to men who are ignorant of the Bible. He takes them on this tour through the scriptures, but none of these scriptures, it's not like they haven't, you, here's the thing you have to realize about the Jewish nation in the time of the New Testament. Totally different culture than what we live in today. We live in a culture here today where as many people as there are in this auditorium, there are different interests. Some of you are into sports. Some of you are more into music and the arts. Some of you are more into whatever, different things. And then even if you're into sports, there's a hot, I mean, you could have five people in a room. They're all into sports, but they're all into different ones. One is into hockey. One is into baseball. One's into tennis. One is into football. Like there's, we live, we live in, a, in a culture of options. We don't have, you know, one unifying thing that we all are into, really. Uh, we don't have that in this culture. Thing is, in the Jewish culture in that day, they didn't have internet. They didn't have different kinds of sports to follow. They had, the Jewish culture was literally built around the Bible. This is what you did. And when you went to bed at night, there wasn't a bunch of TV shows to watch first, and you could pick which one. There wasn't a bunch of different news outlets to follow. There was one thing you were going to hear from the Bible again tonight. And it's going to be Bible stories. The only question is, which Bible story is it tonight? And when you ate at dinner time, you discussed the law. Like their, old their whole society was built around one thing, the Bible. They all knew it. So when Jesus takes these guys on a, on a tour of the Bible for two hours on the road to Emmaus, this is not him exposing them to passages they've never heard before. They've heard these passages tons. Most of these guys, by the time they were 12, had gigantic chunks of the Psalms and the, and the law, the books of Moses, memorized by heart. He's not taking them to brand new passages they've never heard. These guys absolutely know their Bibles. And yet, they missed the whole point. They missed the whole plan of God, didn't they? They had the Bible. They knew the Bible, they studied the Bible, and yet they still didn't get it. And then on top of that, Jesus came and told them in person, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise on the third day, and they still didn't get it. They knew their Bibles and they didn't get it, and then Jesus explicitly told them, and they didn't get it, okay? 
They didn't get it. How is that possible? Well, we'll skip ahead. Verse 28. Verse 28, Luke's going to explain it to us. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it's getting dark now. Okay, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now uh, well spent, far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. I want you to notice two things. And later, if we, if we had time to get to the end of the chapter, we would also see Jesus open up their minds. But we see him open up their eyes to be able to see him, and we see him open up the scriptures to them. And until he opens those two things, they can't get it. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You can have a PhD, and it's not bad to be smart. It's not bad to have a PhD. It's not bad to study the Bible. Absolutely not. I study the Bible. Okay? But if you think that you can know God and you can know his heart and you can know his plans by getting a degree or by studying it or by being smart, you can't. Unless Jesus himself opens up your eyes, you will miss the whole point. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards and you can miss the whole point. And unless Jesus opens our eyes, we cannot have fellowship with him. We cannot see him in our day-to-day lives. But I want you to notice that after he opens their eyes, so they went on a whole hike with him, whole hike, Two hours, he does a Bible study. They still don't recognize him, but he opens their eyes. Now they see him. Now I want you to see that he opens up the scriptures. Now the very next verse I want to see, and now their lives are transformed. They go from unbelieving. They knew the scriptures. They knew what he had prophesied was going to happen to him in his death. Couldn't receive it. They were doubting. They were unbelieving, but he opens their eyes. Now they finally get it. And the very next thing they do, and they rose that same hour, they turn around. It was actually dangerous to travel at that time of night, and it didn't matter now. They were filled with joy. Ho, he's risen. He's been telling you that for a couple years already. Now we get it, right? I just love these guys. Doesn't this story make you feel good? Because they're just like us. How many things does Jesus tell us and we just can't get it? We've known for five years, this is how I want to live. This is what I would like to be like. This is how I would like to act in this situation. And we just can't do it until Jesus himself does something inside of us. So verse 33, he opens their eyes, he opens up the scriptures to them, and in that same hour, they are filled with joy and they return to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Let me say this, every good change that has ever happened in your life, every good thing, Paul says in Philippians, he is the one who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Every good thing, every good change that has ever happened in your your life was initiated by him. We don't love him because we first loved him. We love him because he first loved us. He is always the initiator. Unless he does a work in us, unless he opens up our eyes, unless he speaks into our hearts, unless he does it, we can't do anything. We're utterly helpless. I want you to notice in this story how helpless the disciples are. They can't even recognize his physical body unless he opens their eyes to do it. They can't understand the scriptures unless he opens it up. They can't, their minds, at the end of the chapter, we find out they can't understand spiritual truth unless he opens their minds to understand it. We need Jesus for absolutely every single thing in our lives. And that's why Revelation 4, I've talked about this uh, in the past, but Revelation chapter 4 has this brilliant picture of heaven 
that in heaven, we're gonna, one of the ways we're going to worship Jesus is, and it was, we're going to over and over again, we're going to cast our crowns down at his feet. And then we're going to pick them up, and then we're going to cast them down. Here's what I imagine is happening and why. Those of us who are serving Jesus to the best of our ability, and that's weak. We're all weak. We're all imperfect. But those of us who, who give him our best in weakness, and we, our goal is to serve him in this life, when we get to heaven, he's going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. And some of you think, that could never happen to me. Actually, you just have to give him yourself in weakness. It's not for the super spiritual. The well done, good and faithful servant is not for the super spiritual. It's just for those who in weakness just give themselves to God, whatever they have. And you're going to get to heaven, and he's going to give you a crown. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But what's going to happen in that moment is he's going to give you that crown, and that crown you're going to go, I can't take this. You, everything good I ever did, I did because you opened my eyes, you put that desire in me, you gave me the ability to will and to act according to your good purpose. It all started with you. You loved me first, I just reflected a little bit back. You wanted me to change, you put that desire in me, you helped me to do it. It was all you. I, Lord, I can't take the crown. I give back to you, I worship you. And he says, oh, no, 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 well done, good and faithful story, he gives back. No, Jesus, it was all you, and it's going to be this cycle in heaven, this joyful cycle. No, I give it to you. Oh, I love you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll just worship and worship and worship. This is how it works. But it all starts with him. He initiates every good thing in our lives. We can look back and we can look back with gratitude and literally we can look back and see, I can look back in my life and I've done this repeatedly, uh, especially in this last year, but I can go back in my life and I can see every good thing started with him doing something in my life. And then he opens your eyes opens your heart to something, and suddenly you can receive something that for years you just couldn't get it. You knew it, but you just couldn't get it. It didn't change your life. You knew that truth since you were a kid, but all of a sudden, huh, there it is. That's his Holy Spirit. He opened your eyes. He opened your heart, and then you could take it. Now, for many of us, that's very good news. We look at it, and we go, I'm so grateful. We just sang that song about him being sovereign over us, the initiator of all the good things in our lives, and so we go, that's amazing truth, but for some of you, Maybe there's a little bit of a, a negative tinge to it. Because the question then is, why isn't he initiating more good in my life, right? Or why isn't he initiating more good in my spouse's life, <laughs> right? Like, get on it, Jesus. I got some things I'm praying, right? Why does it take so long? If we're so dependent on Jesus, why does it take so long? I mean, we look at the story of the disciples. Why didn't he open their eyes before? Why do, they have to go, why do they have to go through the whole season of sadness and discouragement and despair? Like, why didn't he open their eyes up before the cross so they could understand it, be ready for it, be pumped, and, 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 and literally go to the tomb with breakfast and be like, yeah, this is awesome. Why do they have to go through locked doors, being afraid, confused, doubting? Why do they have to do this? There's so many truths I think we can learn about Jesus in this. I can rapid fire a few, and then there's three I want to just dwell on to end this message, but first of all, clearly, clearly, Jesus is not in a hurry. Again, I, I go back to this road to Emmaus. He, he doesn't need to walk with him two hours. You would think the God of the universe who has just done the greatest thing in human history would be in a bit more of a hurry to be doing other things. But he's got these two disciples. They're not even one of the 12. They're not even the main guys. And he takes the time, knowing that they're going to have to walk back, he could have saved them a trip out and a trip back. Right? He could have just said, hey, guys, it's me. Psst, I'm alive. Whoa! You know, save him four miles of walking, lots of hours of... But no, 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 no. He is not in a hurry, first of all. Obviously, he loves the process. See, there's, there's something so good for the human heart about the process 
of not getting it right away, of running into our human limitations. There is something really good for each of us about running into our limitations and our weakness that it forces us to know that he's the one we need. You know, we sang that song today, Lord, we need you. If he just opened up your heart all the time immediately and just did it and you were changed, you would not actually know and be able to sing the truth of that song. Lord, we actually do need you every hour. There's something so good that settles stuff in the heart. It drives the lessons home deeper. And the other thing is, it's so relational. Do you see how relational Jesus is here? To walk with them and take them through a Bible study, not just, poop, here I am and gone, but to walk them through a Bible study like that, to break bread with them, and then in the right time to open up their eyes. He's so relational. And he loves the process, and he's not in a hurry. He's so relational, he loves the process, and he's not in a hurry. And actually, those truths right there should change the way we approach our struggles. And so there's three things, I think, that we need to trust Jesus. As we think about this and who he is and how much we need him, there's three, there's three trusts we have, to, we have to grab hold of. First of all, trust. We need to learn to trust that he is with us the whole way, even if he's sometimes hidden. These disciples were right. Think about the hiddenness of Jesus in this thing. He is right physically beside them, and they don't know it. But the crazy thing is, but he is with them, right? And there are sometimes we just feel like he is not with me in this. There are certain struggles. Like, why, why do I have to, why did this happen to me? Why do I have to go through this marriage struggle? Why do I have to go through this particular temptation and it's been going on for years? Why do I have to go through this? It feels like God has abandoned me. It feels like he's not with me. It feels like he's not listening to me. Right? And that's what these disciples felt as well. They felt that, right? We had hoped. Let me take you to that. Verse 21. They're, they're disillusioned. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped have you ever had disappointed hopes, right? I was, this wasn't supposed to work out this way for me in my life. I wasn't, this, this thing I've been wrestling with, it was supposed to be healed a long time ago. That's what I felt in prayer. This, my marriage wasn't supposed to turn out this way. My kids, life wasn't supposed to turn out. We had hoped things would turn out differently. And often it's those dashed hopes that make us feel like God's not listening. God's not hearing. God's not with me. These guys felt it too. We had hoped. But, and we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the one to fix it all. He was going to set up his kingdom on earth, deal with the Romans, and life was going to be good forever and ever and ever. They had big hopes for Jesus. And now, as they walk on the road to Emmaus, their hopes have been dashed. And in that moment of dashed hopes, they don't think Jesus is with them. But the crazy thing is, he's right with them, listening to them. And you know what else is fascinating to me? Is that at the end of the journey on the road to Emmaus, he still doesn't give them what they've been hoping for, does he? He's still to this day, we're 2,000 years later, he still hasn't done the redeem Israel part. That's the part that's going to come at the end when he sets up his kingdom on earth and we get a resurrected bodies and there's no more sickness or pain or sorrow or death and it's going to be amazing. He actually didn't give them their hope. Their hopes remained unfulfilled. He did only one thing for them and that was enough. He opened their eyes and they could see that he was with them. That's the only thing he did for them. He didn't give them the redemption of Israel. That's to come yet. He gave them one thing. Open their eyes. I can see Jesus is with me in this. And now it's okay. They were filled with joy and they rushed back. Actually, everything's okay because Jesus is with me and I can see it. I can walk with him in this. 
But we're going to have to grow in trust. We're going to have to pray, Jesus, open up our eyes. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open our eyes and our hearts to know you. We have to trust that he is with us the whole way, even in dashed hopes and a life that hasn't turned out the way we would have chosen for ourselves. Number two, we're going to have to trust that there's a timing for everything. We're going to have to trust that there is a timing for everything. Jesus could have shown himself to those disciples, you know, right at the beginning of the hike. He could have shown himself to the disciples before the cross ever happened. He could have shown himself, he could open their eyes at any point in there, but he didn't. He waited till the end of the hike. Why? He knows best. There was something about the hike they needed to settle those truths deeper. To settle their hearts, whatever it was that he was doing, he's the one who's sovereign over it all. He knew that they had to go through it, and then they had to do the hike, and then at the end he would open their eyes. He had a timing for the whole thing. I wonder if while he was on the cross, if he was thinking about that moment, that must have been so fun. You know, when he was in pain on the cross, sometimes when we're in a lot of pain, looking ahead to something joyful can be something that gets us through. I wonder if on the cross he was imagining himself opening these disciples' eyes at the end of the road to Emmaus. That must have been fun, right? But there was a timing for everything. And sometimes we're going to have to trust that there is a timing coming, that there is a time, and he is going to answer, and he is going to open our eyes. But some of us, we just we deal with so much regret from weaknesses in the past. Why couldn't I have changed quicker, right? I mean, I already, I mean one way, you know, a lot of parents have regrets. I already have regrets. My oldest is 11, okay? Um, you know, my oldest two, I got from 3 to 11. Our oldest two, uh, you know, Joy and Charlie, they have uh, broken us in, LaDonna and I, okay? So when we started having kids, I had these lofty ideals of how I was going to have the perfect kids, I was going to do this, and it was going to be strict in our home, da, da, da. And, and, and then I realized, what an idiot, right? And I have regrets about some of that stuff, and I've had to say sorry to the kids, I've had to say sorry to God, and, and I parent the younger two a lot more wisely and a lot more compassionately. And sometimes I've actually asked God, like, why, why did I do some of those things? Why was I so overbearing? Why was I so strict? And I've asked God, like, why couldn't you have shown me this earlier? But that's the whole point. It was going through this that he was using to change me, right? Why couldn't you have shown me earlier? I can't go back and change it. The fact of the matter is, we're all weak human beings. Every one of us here is a weak human being. And you can live in a past filled with regret for how weak you were for much of your life, or you can conf- And yes, confess and repent. We repent, we turn from those wicked ways, but then we actually need to let go of the regret and the self-condemnation, and we need to say, Lord, I'm just just trusting. You had a timing. You had to walk me through this. The process is good. And that brings us to the third thing. We have to have grace for ourselves and trust that he can redeem the mistakes and weaknesses from our past. We just have to trust. He knew the process all along. He could have showed these, he could have saved these disciples having to doubt. He could have saved Peter having to deny him. He could have saved them, all that sort of stuff. But somehow, in the end, it was better for them all to go through it. It was better for them to be confronted by their weakness. It was better for them to run into their limitations and then, in the end, to be overjoyed that it's all about him. It was all better for them to go through the process. We have to actually trust that he can redeem our past, that he can redeem that this whole process we've been in, we actually have to have more grace for ourselves. Repent when we sin, confess godly sorrow, absolutely yes, but then let it go. You can't live with all that regret. You can't live with all that self-condemnation. This is what we are. We are frail human beings, and apart from Jesus, we can't do nothing. It's nothing. We are utterly and absolutely 
dependent on him. And so we need to learn to forgive ourselves by Jesus' grace. We need to focus our eyes on Jesus rather than on our failures. So here's how I want to end this, and then we're going to sing a final song. I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. Trust. Trust, trust, trust. Trust that he's with you in particular struggles right now that you can't see him. Trust that he's got a timing for everything, that things are going to click at some point. Trust, trust, trust. Trust that he can redeem your past and your mistakes. I mean, we're going to take a moment. We're going to listen. I just want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. We're just going to take a moment quietly because in a message where I talk about the need for Jesus to open our eyes and our, and our ears to hear him and to see him and to know him, then we have to give him a moment to just do that in our lives. So I'm just going to give the Lord a chance to, maybe there's something from your past you've been holding on to with regret. Maybe he wants to speak something to you about that. Maybe there's something, there's a struggle you're going through right now and you need to see where he is in that struggle. You need to have him open your eyes or to give you hope that there's a timing when things are going to click. I'm going to let him speak that. I'm going to ask him to and then we're just going to take a minute and we're just going to quietly listen. Uh, Lord Jesus, unless you open our eyes, unless you open our hearts, we are absolutely helpless. Some of us here today need uh, you to open our eyes to where you are in a particular struggle. And some of you need you to open up our, our hearts to receive healing for past regrets, to know that we're weak, but you're, you can redeem those things. And so we just want to wait on you for a moment, Lord Jesus, and we want you to speak into our lives. For those of you who would like a little bit of an extra homework or challenge for the week, and uh, if either of these kind of just jumps something in your, in your heart that you want to try it, uh, two things you could try this week. One is ask Jesus, just have a conversation with Jesus. If there are certain struggles in your life where you're having a hard time seeing, where is Jesus in this? Ask him about that. We can ask him, we can talk, him, talk to him about that. We need him to open up our eyes. Jesus, I want to see you on my road to Emmaus. Where are you on this journey? What are you doing? Have a conversation with him about one of those struggles. Or if you have regrets about something from your past, there's certain things, maybe it's the way you parented. I use that example. But it could be anything, regrets from your past. Uh, ask Jesus that in your weakness, you and I are just human beings. We're frail human beings. And we need Jesus to touch those regrets and show us that he can redeem those things. And you can have a conversation with him, about that with him as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we want to worship you now with a final song. Please speak to us this week. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.